to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, Eliza Lucas Pinckney was born in 1722 on the island of Antigua in the Leeward Islands of the Caribbean, one of the tinier colonies of the British Empire, and she died in 1793 in Philadelphia, the capital of the new American Republic. Those places of birth and death and the 70-odd years between the two events encapsulate a life that not only saw tumultuous change, but helped to create it. For Eliza Lucas Pinckney was one of the wealthiest, most respected, and influential women of her era. This was not only through the legacy of her remarkable children and the labor of those she enslaved, but because of her own intelligence, entrepreneurship, and keen understanding of the world around her in all its diversity and complexity, with one or two important exceptions, as Lori Glover makes clear in her new biography, Eliza Lucas Pinckney, an independent woman in the age of revolution. Lori Glover is the John Francis Bannon Endowed Chair in the Department of History at St. Louis University. Her previous books include Founders as Fathers, The Private Lives and Politics of the American Revolutionaries, and The Fate of the Revolution, Virginians Debate the Constitution. This is her third appearance on Historically Thinking. Lori, welcome back to Historically Thinking. Thank you so much for having me back. Well, two more appearances and you get a gold lame jacket. Um, or a coffee mug. That's we. I don't think we. The production budget won't bear a gold lame jacket yet, so we'll probably just give you the coffee mug. Um, so uh, I think last we talked, you said you're working on this biography, and I've been so excited to read it, and my excitement was justified. Um, I realized as I was taking notes why I don't. There's several reasons why I don't talk to people more often about colonial America. And one thing is is that Liz Covart got there ahead of me, and she does that very well in Ben Franklin's world. Uh, and the other thing is is my podcast would be too long. So I'm going to try to restrain myself. So this uh, podcast is under two hours. Um, I think we should begin with um, explaining um, why uh, Eliza Pinckney is, um, why in some ways, I can't believe I'm about to say this, why in some ways she's a much more important person than Abigail Adams. And what I mean by that is uh, that she has, as you say in, in the very title of your book, she is an independent an independent woman, an independent life. And what do you mean by that? Well, most of the women from the 18th century um, that who people know about, Abigail Adams, um, Martha Washington, uh, Eliza Hamilton, uh, more recently. Dolly Madison. Uh, Dolly Madison. They are well known because of their proximity to powerful and influential men. And Eliza was certainly connected to powerful and influential men, her, her father in the Caribbean, her husband in South Carolina, her sons uh, in the early Republic. But her principal influence and power and significance was not derived from those men. It was from the life that she led independently, really, uh, as an independent planter patriarch uh, in her teens and early 20s. And then later on, as the you know, sort of quintessential planner patriarch, except for being female, uh, of heading a, a very powerful family in the late colonial and uh, early national era. So she was, a, a as you mentioned, an entrepreneur. Uh, she trafficked commodities globally. Um, she was a sort of an Atlantic wayfarer. And she left the largest record of writings of any woman from the colonial South uh, or the English Caribbean that I'm aware of. In fact, her writings, mm -hmm. I, I think, are surpassed maybe only by Abigail Adams and that because of Abigail's extensive um, correspondence with John. So she is a, a woman of significance and power in her own right in a world that we often think of as dominated by men. Mm -hmm. And there's a it, people might be immediately suspicious and say, well, you, you guys think she's important because she left a lot of information and, you know, historians are guilty of that. We are the drunk looking for our keys under the streetlight <laughs> often. 
Um, that's which the keys. We dropped the keys elsewhere, but that's where the light is. But this, what her her writings reveal is that uh, I should say it's not just letters that she leaves behind. Although she does have a letter book, which we should say is remarkable for a woman in the 18th century. There aren't many, if at right. all. Right. Um, but then she leaves these other interesting things, like well, that we'll get to, like her um, spiritual writings uh, to herself um, and uh, other her her. Her, basically her lab notebook, um, other sorts of, of, of information that she leaves behind, which is also extraordinarily unusual for a man or a woman. Right. That's right. So, you know, in the, in the colonial world, uh, letter books, which, you know, if, if your listeners don't know what we mean by that, uh, a letter book is um, a copy of letters that are mailed. So it's a collection of copies of letters. And mostly the people who kept letter books in colonial America were, you know, international people who were conducting international business, um, people who traveled a lot, uh, people who were, you know, uh, attorneys. Uh, or diplomats. And they kept those letter books because the letters they mailed were sent, you know, into a sort of a, a fraught world, especially if you're sending them around the Atlantic. Ships um, got waylaid or lost at sea. And so people who had important business to conduct kept copies of their letters in a letter book. And so it was very unusual for a woman to keep a letter book because it was fairly unusual for a woman to have the, um, you know, business of, of running, um, international commodities markets, for example, uh, or, you know, trafficking in, in goods from the Caribbean to the mainland of North America, uh, over to England. Uh, and so since Eliza was doing that, she felt an obligation to keep she was doing that as a teenager. She felt an obligation to keep a letter book, but then she took to writing. And as you pointed out, she, um, you know, she recorded her spiritual thoughts. She recorded um, private prayers that she created. She recorded, uh, you know, sort of daily resolutions. And she kept what she called a recipe book. Um, and it did include recipes for foods, but it also included recipes for medical treatments. Uh, so it was, um, I guess, a scientific log um, uh, as much as it was a, a collection of food recipes. Sure. And it shows us, you know, how cookbooks and lab notebooks and textbooks kind of all have the same, they have the same origin. They were once the same thing. Right. So sort of the, the way bars and pharmacies were sort of the same thing once. Um, so let's start with the... Uh, the most important opening fact about Eliza, which I mentioned in the introduction, that she comes from Antigua. So let's set up the the terroir from which Eliza Lucas comes. So I begin the book by saying she was lucky from the outset of her life. She was born into uh, a wealthy white family uh, in uh the locals call it Antigua. Americans usually say Antigua, so I'm going to say Antigua. Uh, she was born in Antigua to a, a wealthy family, a white family. Uh, the whites were the minority, but overwhelmingly dominated the enslaved black majority. And so uh, her her life from its very inception was marked by privilege. Her father was a, a, a landholder. Uh, a sugar planter. He had three mills on different plantations. They had a separate house in uh, St. John's, which was the capital uh, of the island. And so she grew up in a privileged, but you know, somewhat isolated, as well as connected part of um, the English Caribbean, and and um, and was you know, seemingly very intelligent. She, her father had four children. She, as best I can tell, was clearly his favorite. She was the oldest of the four. Uh, and he sent her as a young girl over to England for school where she grew to a woman and then returned back to the uh, family estates uh, in Antigua. There's a couple of things I want to highlight there. Uh, one is uh, with our focus on the Atlantic world, we often uh, we speak a, a great deal, as we should, about the many connections between places like Antigua and and the rest of the Atlantic world. Uh, and yet we, we then lose sight of the fact that for Eliza Lucas, for the Lucas family, it could be very, it was very isolated um, and how lonely that existence could be 
not just because of the geographical space, but because uh, what was the proportion of, of white slave masters, or uh, they're all slave masters in, in one way or the other, um, to the black population? It's an extraordinary, it's a, not, just, it's not just a slave majority, it's a slave supermajority. That's right. Uh, you know, somewhere between 75 and 90 percent uh, of the residents of Antigua in the 18th century were enslaved uh, and uh, and black. And so, you know, I often think about Eliza, um, you know, when she was a girl and she walked through um, the streets of St. John's. Like every memory would have been of her differentness. And also of the power that came with that differentness, because as you know, there were um, very elaborate physical rules about how black people approached or comported themselves when they were in contact with white people, and and violation of those rules could result in um, you know violence or or even death. And so she she would have worn that power uh, before she even realized it. And, and then of course she goes to England and she's there for five or six years, uh, living in London and then, you know, leaves London and comes back to, uh, Antigua. And I I think what a shock that must've been to a go from being a, a racial minority and among the most powerful people, uh, in your home to the center of the empire, this bustling, um, you know, metropolis, uh, and then, back home again to, uh, you know, a, a, a tiny island on the periphery of the, the known world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about her education um, before we move on to disaster, which is <laughs> a kind of a theme of the book as well. Um, she, uh, How is she educated in, in, in England? And is it different from the education that other young women would have gotten? So there are no records uh, from Eliza of her experiences in London. Doubtless she wrote her relatives, um, her, her parents uh, and her siblings, but no one bothered to keep them because they're just, you know, the scribblings of an adolescent girl. Um, she certainly learned the traditional skills that girls in the uh, white girls in the 18th century were supposed to learn. She learned French. Uh, she learned to play musical instruments. Uh, she learned how to socialize with uh, grace and elegance. But she took to academics as well. And so it's it's clear to me from the things she writes later in her life and the things that she does that she learned uh, a good deal about botany. She learned about law. Um, she learned about bookkeeping. And so in addition to the refined skills of a genteel woman, she learned the practical lessons uh, of an education that that uh, paid a high dividend later on in her life. Uh, she was mm-hmm. very widely read uh, and she was endlessly fascinated, um, especially with science and botany, but with um, law and commerce and literature as well. Yeah, it's amazing. A little later in the book, you describe how she's able to draft wills for people, or she's, I think, steps back from that. But she she, she has a great deal of just that practical legal knowledge that Caroline, Southern planners uh, all pr- uh, prided themselves on having. Right, right. Yeah. Um, the uh, the botany thing is an interesting thing, because this will be a very important part of her, her story. When, do, when does it first... Um, clear that she has a particular interest for, for botany and botanizing? Well, among the first letters she ever writes that are preserved it, um, are elaborate descriptions of encountering low country South Carolina. So when Eliza left uh, her education in England and returned back to Antigua, the family rather quickly left Antigua and migrated up to the mainland of South Carolina in the low country around Charleston. And she wrote very elaborate descriptions of the physical world that she encountered, the plants, the animals, uh, the topography, uh, the soil. And, you know, at this point, she's 16 years old. Uh, She later on reflects that this is one of my favorite quotes from her. She's, you know, 
very smart, but also a little geeky. She said, I own that I love the vegetable world extremely. <laughs> what 19 year old says, I love the vegetable world extremely. Uh, but she did, but, but the earliest writings uh, that have been recovered reflect her um, knowledge of uh, the natural world and her interest in it. Um. Why you, 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 this brings us to disasters uh, when we get to the why the Lucas family uh, left Antigua for uh, Carolina. Um, so w- the Caribbean, I mean, even now, it's a violent place. Um, it's uh, it's on top of a lot of volcanoes. It's on a it's on top for the same reason there are volcanoes. There are earthquakes. It's on a tectonic plate. Um, in addition to that, we've got hurricanes, which is a, a, a term that's coined by the Spanish when they encounter these storms in the Caribbean. And uh, and then we've also, of course, at the time, we've got the threat of slave revolts, which one must expect when one has a population of 75 to 90 percent enslaved and blacks are around you, uh, the majority of whom are actually young men uh, who use uh, knives as part of their daily work. Um, so could you discuss that sort of role of disaster and the Lucas family decision to go and and sort of disaster in Eliza's life, the life of a, of a Caribbean white. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, it's an incredibly violent world. Um, the whole colonial world is incredibly violent and that's thrown into high relief, I think, uh, in the Caribbean. So the institution of slavery works only because of systemic threats and acts of violence. And so, you know, force meets force. Uh, And so, you know, there's that kind of human-centered violence, uh, mostly white inflicted on black, but occasionally uh, black inflicted uh, on white. Um, In addition to hurricanes and volcanoes, uh, many of the Caribbean holdings have few or no natural sources of water, so they have to gather water or ship in water. Uh, and so droughts are uh, devastating from time to time in the Caribbean colonies. Um, you know, there are infestations uh, of, um, you know, that destroy uh, crops. There are droughts um, because most of the English Caribbean colonies are cultivating sugar and turning high profits at sugar cultivations, the landholders use little of their land for planting food. And so the shipping in of food is necessary as well. And so droughts can, uh, or wars can upset that. And so famine uh, is a not infrequent problem in the Caribbean. And then, you know, once the locusts migrate up to South Carolina, they have similar problems with um uh, the violence uh, endemic to slavery, and they arrived shortly before the most um, successful slave revolt in mainland colonial North America, uh, the Stono Rebellion. It, it unfolds near their house, uh, and they deal there with uh, inadequate water supplies, um, violent storms, and time to time hurricanes. So, you know, the physical world is very violent. And the world that colonizers create is very violent. Mm-hmm. And that's, and I was thinking as I was writing the notes, I, I forgot to mention also epidemics. Um, the Absolutely. The colonizers create is uh, one in which they're bringing enslaved people over from Africa who have within their bodies, particularly their malnourished bodies, they have all the various um, th- uh, mutations of malaria or yellow fever that are, they're bringing over from uh the, the richer biodiversity of, of, of the African continent, and that uh, sickens people, even those people who for whom uh, malaria is already sort of in their bloodstream, there's always a new variety to, to catch. That's right, malaria, uh, smallpox. And smallpox coming from, from, from London or from, from England, uh, to which Americans of all types are unused, are unused to. Right, right. So um, they make it to the Carolinas. Um, we should, uh, this is probably a good point to uh, sort of um, suss out uh, for listeners the curious connection between the Carolinas and the Caribbean. It's not that the rest of colonial America is not intimately related to the Caribbean. Uh, Winthrop's Massachusetts Bay Colony makes its money by 
selling stuff to the uh, the slave colonies of the sugar colonies of of the Caribbean. But Carolina always had a South Carolina had a curious relationship with the Caribbean, and the Lucases sort of exemplify that. Is that is that am I right about that? Absolutely. Uh, so South Carolina is really is a colony of a colony. It's founded in the late 17th century as a colony of a colony, particularly. Barbados. So as sugar planters in the Caribbean ran out of land uh, for growing sugar, they looked for places elsewhere that they might migrate. Uh, And South Carolina looked promising. It turned out that the climate of South Carolina was not conducive to commercial sugar production, but that was certainly the hope. Um, And for, you know, people who had grown up and and lived all their lives in the Caribbean. Eliza's a third generation Antiguan. Uh, The environment of South Carolina, which to, you know, maybe from people from Massachusetts seemed deadly, (laughs) was from the point of view of people from the Leeward Islands, similar, but more hospitable, less deadly. Um, Mm -hmm. And they could engage in, you know, commercial agriculture that that they understood, maybe not sugar, but other commercial commodities. And so it was, um, there were longstanding connections between South Carolina uh, and the Caribbean. There's actually a, a, you know, a whole literature in scholarship mm-hmm. uh, led by Matthew McCauley, I think is the scholar's name. Uh, there's a very good book called Hubs of Empire, which really uh, encapsulates the argument that we ought to think about South Carolina as part of a greater Caribbean, as much as we think about it as part of, uh, you know, mainland English America. Yeah. Um, and there's, and, and Carolina, uh, they, they, they have a hard time figuring out what they're going to settle on, uh, as sort of their commodity. Um, it's interesting. Eliza never mentions deerskins, but we know that, of course, the deerskin trade is huge. Sure, uh, sure. There's there's an Indian slave trade as well, um, which ships those out to the Caribbean. Um, beef is actually huge um, from Carolina um, right. that ships salted and shipped out. But then rice becomes a thing. And we then get to sort of one of the, the chief moments of Eliza's life. Could you describe... Uh, sort of her first period of independence and and what she does with that and sort of furthering what she calls her schemes? Sure. Uh, as you pointed out, there are all sorts of efforts to make Carolina profitable. Uh, and there's great avenues for that with deer skins, with beef, uh, with uh, grains. The first really um, wealth-producing crop that's grown in South Carolina is rice. And so when George Lucas... Uh, not the film director, but Eliza's father migrates up to South Carolina. He owns, he, he has inherited and then purchases uh, a right. He inherited two and then purchased a third rice plantations. And so rice is the main business of South Carolina in the 1730s. So the Lucases arrive near the end of that decade, and England is embroiled in a, a you know, a spiraling Caribbean war, and it makes it more difficult to traffic rice. And so the challenges of trafficking rice around the uh, Atlantic merge with the ongoing entrepreneurial efforts of planters in South Carolina to diversify. Uh, And Eliza becomes a central figure in introducing the second great commercial crop in colonial South Carolina, and that is indigo. So most people today don't know very much about indigo, but in the colonial period, it was an incredibly desirable and therefore lucrative crop. It, uh, the plant produced dye, uh, a blue dye, and various hues of blue from you know, the faintest gray to deep cobalt. Uh, and everybody in the Atlantic world were blue. Uh, wealthy people were, you know, purple uh, and uh, and cobalt silk and enslaved people wore, um, you know, clothing dyed faint gray, soldiers and sailors uh, wore blue. And so most of the market was dominated by the French until Eliza and a group of other planters from South Carolina, all the rest of the men, uh, one, her future husband, began to work together in the early 40s, 1740s, 
to commercially produce indigo. And uh, this was the, the first of um, several successful, Eliza called them her schemes, as you said, uh, mm-hmm. of botanical uh, agricultural experiments that she undertook to keep her family wealthy uh, and powerful. And so she um, she developed at the uh, Central Lucas Plantation, Wapu, uh, a very successful indigo works that, of course, depended on um, enslaved labor, uh, international connections with her father, who, by the way, had gone back to Antigua. So this is the point in Eliza's life where she's, you know, 16, 17, 18, 19. She is running three plantations in low country, South Carolina, um, as an independent planter and engaging in, um, you know, commodities uh, and botanical experiments, including indigo. What is so interesting about this is how long, uh, since since Jamestown, uh, English coming to the South had tried to find ways of of diversifying uh, of of the 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 Southern economy. Um, uh, tobacco establishes itself, and they're still trying to find ways of of cultivating silk or something like that. And finally, it's this this eighteen nineteen year old girl um, who, with other people as well. Um, uh, most notably, uh, one of her ensla- enslaved men, uh, later John Williams, um, who helps to develop an actual diversified Carolina economy. It's really quite extraordinary that 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 long, long uh, sort of story of economic history ends ends with this. Um, how did she go about doing that? And did and how you, you said there were other people working on it? Were they sharing information with each other, or what? What were they doing together? They, they were sharing information uh, with one another. She had neighbors who were helping. Um, she was she was helping uh, neighbors. There were you know publications even in a local newspaper about the experiments uh, on indigo. So the you know the planter class in South Carolina was was tight and often uh, interconnected by family, but they, you know, also understood that it, that one person alone was not going to be able to make a go of indigo. They were going to have to expand it, um, you know, and so they, they were not very proprietary about um, what they were doing. They, you know, they were really struggling to figure out how to turn this, you know, sort of scrubby bush into uh, bricks of indigo dye that they could traffic commercially. So Eliza relied. I'm sorry. Go ahead. You know, go go ahead. Well, I was just going to say Eliza got indigo seeds from her father in the Caribbean. Her father also sent a man from Montserrat, which is a French colony uh, uh, near Antigua. He sent this man up to Carolina to help Eliza. Uh, she cooperated with uh, other planters in the Low Country, and she depended heavily on the man you mentioned, uh, John Williams who at this point Eliza refers to as Quash. Um, Later on, he changes his name to John Williams, but she relies on uh, an enslaved man, Quash John Williams, to build the indigo works uh, at Wapu and help her supervise uh, the undertaking. So it's a very collaborative uh, effort with her at the center. And because she was a, um, a woman unusual for her to be involved in that. And later generations in her family promoted the idea that she invented indigo production in South Carolina. And that sort of hit. So you'll sometimes see in eighth grade textbooks that Eliza Mm -hmm. Lucas introduced indigo to South Carolina. And that's uh, only partly true. She Mm -hmm. did it in cooperation with lots of other people. Did she breed indigo? Did she was she like cross um, was she uh, cross breeding it and come up with a, a better plant? Was that part of her botanical? Do we well, know the that? Prob- the problem wasn't so much the plant. The problem was turning the leaves into a viable dye. Uh, uh-huh. So the plant will grow, you know, pretty easily, uh, but the skill is in turning it into a dye. And um, one description that I read um, was. And I, and I thought it was very apt. It was kind of like making whiskey, right, it, mm. in the colonial period. Like you do, now we understand all the chemical processes to produce indigo, uh, to uh, produce whiskey. But in, you know, the colonial world, it was about smell and 
touch and it was very sensory. And so you had to be skilled to discern when you made the very steps in the process of uh, producing the indigo dye. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it, to get back to recipes, it's like reading one of those 18th century cookbooks. Uh, you have to be a very good cook in order to uh, follow their lack of direction. <laughs> That's right. There are no measurements. It's just you know no. you need these 17 things, but but you, but you know what that means. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, if you yeah if you know how to cook, otherwise it's going to be really really awful. That's right. Um, so. She's got this period of independence. She has lots of friends. She's borrowing books from people. It's, it, it, it sounds wonderful. And then she very suddenly marries. Could you describe her 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 husband? Um, this sort of, um, I don't know what you call it, an autumn-spring marriage or something like that. But it's uh, he's a much older man, um, maybe even by the standards of that time. And yet she's very, very happy. Right. So Charles Pinckney and his first wife, Elizabeth Pinckney, were neighbors of Eliza Lucas. And they sort of took her under their wing, um, you know, when her father left and went back to the Caribbean. So she traveled with them. She visited them often. Uh, He sent her books. Uh, She became very good friends with a niece of theirs who came from England to live with them for uh, a couple of years. And the first wife, Elizabeth Pinckney, got sick, and Eliza Lucas helped to take care of her as she was dying, uh, along with Charles. So Elizabeth Pinckney died in December of one year, and Eliza and Charles married, I believe, in March of the following year. So it was a very, very quick remarriage. He was, um, you know, 20 something years, I think, older than her, which was not unusual uh, in South Carolina, but it was it was on the far end of what was not unusual. The speed with which they married was pretty unusual, Um, you know, not not a far outlier, but it raised some eyebrows in South Carolina. Um, But it, it appeared to me in all the records that I could find really a love match. Uh, He admired her intelligence. Uh, He respected her um, understanding of commercial agriculture. They were partners in uh, of of a fashion in working on indigo production and partners in a fashion on their own plantations um, after they married. And so, you know, she was lucky in this, in the choice that she made of her mate because he didn't force her into a more traditional um, that is sort of isolated and controlled female role. Um, and she, she loved him deeply. They were married for 14 years before he died uh, and she never considered remarrying again. So, you know, she had an independent period early in her life. She had this, uh, I think a fairly unusual marriage uh, and then she was independent. After he died, she was an independent planter and patriarch for the rest of her life. So, with her marriage to Charles Pinckney, he's one of the one of the wealthiest men in Carolina. Or? Correct. He's one of the wealthiest and most uh, influential men uh, in South Carolina. After they got married, they built a new house uh, in Charleston. It was uh, the most uh, lavish house, the largest and most lavish house in the city uh, for many, many years. When they decided that they would move to England, she thought permanently, he thought temporarily. In the 1750s, they rented the house out to successive colonial governors. Hmm. Uh, so they had uh, that home. They had you know, many plantations ranging across uh, the low country, hundreds of people uh, that they enslaved. Uh, and he was you know, there was there was no man in colonial South Carolina who had more respect and renown and wealth than Charles Pinckney. So she really is, she moves from being in the upper echelons of society uh, in the Caribbean uh, uh, with the Lucases to being really at the pinnacle of um, colonial South Carolina society with her husband. And, you know, I just add that the wealthy people in South Carolina were among the wealthiest people in all of 
British North America. Mm -hmm. the, the rice is taking off. Indigo, you have some astounding figures on how fast indigo accelerates uh, in terms of the trade um, uh, after those initial successful experiments that she and others had made. Um, you're, they're, sending, they're going from very little to, what, 500,000 pounds of indigo in two years or something like that? Um, something crazy. I, I'd have to look at the book again and make sure. Yeah, that, that, that doesn't sound unreasonable. It's, 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 it's staggering profits. Yes. Uh, you know, all through... Um, enslaved labor, of course. So South Carolina has a black majority, um, an enslaved majority. It's the only mainland English colony to have a black majority, to have an enslaved majority. And so, you know, you have this mass of enslaved people producing uh, globally trafficked commodities for um, a white minority. So it's it, in that sense, it's, it's very akin to the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. um, so they... She goes back to England. Uh, they move to England uh, with their sons, uh, but the, their children. No, all three children by that that time. Right. Um, uh, could you d describe uh, where they go to? And 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 this is what as we were talking before we started recording, Julie Flavel's uh, Flavel Flavel, her book uh, When London Was Capital of America, which is uh, very descriptive of uh, of this of this moment. Um, what? Do they? Why would they want to move to England? Um, what's in England for a Carolinian or Virginian or anyone else? Well, Charles had been denied an important um, royal appointment in South Carolina, and Eliza had always loved England. She remained in contact with um, with her English friends. Um, she she was not a huge fan of social life in Charleston. Um, and so, you know, the occasion of him being rebuffed from this royal appointment then presented another opportunity. And that is the people of South Carolina wanted to appoint him as their agent in London. So the representative of the colonial economy before uh, the Board of Trade. And this seemed in South Carolina like a really important assignment for a man of great wealth and great renown. And so uh, Charles, Eliza, and at that point they have three children. She had she had born four children. One died, uh, so they and the three children head off to England. They move to London, which is this incredible metropolis. I mean, it's the center of uh, commerce and literature and art, and uh, you know, just sort of a, a booming space. And they get there, and some of it is quite familiar. I mean, he was educated in, in England as a young man. Uh, he had met his first wife uh, in England and, uh, and brought her back to Carolina. Uh, Eliza had had her, uh, you know, girlhood in England. So some things were very familiar, but they also discovered rather quickly where important colonial Carolinians fit in the larger British Empire, which was pretty low on the priority list. So he went from being the among the most important men in South Carolina to, you know, one of scores of men occasionally called before the Board of Trade to make appointments. They lived in London. Uh, Eliza loved the theater. They lived near the theater district in London. They didn't like that. They moved out uh, to the suburbs of the city, they moved back again, and they finally settled in a village about, I think it's about 20 miles uh, away from London called Ripley. So they had a hard time finding a place that felt like home uh, until they got to Ripley. And so by that time, I think Charles had come to accept uh, his inferior place uh, in the larger empire, and she was able to reconnect with old friends. And, you know, in a small village, they could live like English gentry. That was very different from trying to be in London and be a power player, which was not going to work mm -hmm. for uh, yeah. a, a mere colonial. Well, it also just it, it kind of illustrates um, yet again how the Board of Trade just wasn't that important to English government. And, right, uh, right. And, and the rest, and South the rest, and the rest of the was not that important in the context of the Board of Trade. No, and uh, the you know there the, there is something still to the old idea of that the the empire serve an afterthought in one way or the other. Um, they didn't really have a mechanism for making it important. 
um, or governing it even. Um, so we, uh, let's go back a little bit. Um, what, uh, let's describe her. I, I, one of the reasons I first encountered her was when I was thinking a lot about Anglicanism and intellectual culture in the American South. And, um, and she's notable in that uh, we actually have some record of her spiritual life. Uh, could you describe uh, her resolutions and, and sort of the nature of her beliefs? So she was quite a devout Anglican. Uh, she attended uh, Anglican churches in uh, South Carolina. Um, but she had her own views as well about a proper moral life. So it was challenging for me as a writer to sort of figure out what Anglicanism meant in the context of the colonies versus the <laughs> metropole. It was complicated to figure out what was going on within the individual uh, parishes or churches, um, but also to figure out like where she was, because, you know, of all the personal things she wrote about, I think her, her religion was, was maybe the most complicated. So I began by saying she was a devout Anglican, but that was, I ultimately concluded, filtered through her enlightenment sensibilities. So everything she heard at church, she decided she would test against the natural world. Uh, and so, you know, she, she was, uh, I guess, a searcher is a way mm -hmm. of, uh, of saying it. She was uh, quite dedicated to living what she identified as a moral, ethical, and Christian life. So uh, she wrote uh, out prayers for herself, things that she should be grateful for, things that she should be dedicating her spiritual life to. And she wrote out these resolutions about what her relationship should be like with God, what it should be like um, with in her family, within her community, what kind of character uh, she ought to adopt. Um, and it's all um, very rare, I think, for a, an 18th century Southern person to have, have written and kept such elaborate records of their internal spiritual life. And then the, the other really complicating part for me was in all of this, maybe alienating is a better word, part for me as a writer, was in all of this inward searching for a, a moral, ethical, decent Christian life. She never questioned her role as an enslaver and, in fact, wrote about her duties as a Christian, uh, as a, um, a person of ethics and morality to treat the people she enslaved in, in particular kinds of ways. Um, and so maybe that's the, the fundamental unbridgeable difference between the 18th century and the 21st. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's interesting because when you encounter, um, it, it's always interesting the, the Carolina Virginia division. You you bring that out too. I mean, right. Patrick Henry Patrick Henry never um, he ended up never freeing his slaves, uh, but he certainly uh, articulated to those abolitionists who corresponded with him. He articulated the knowledge that it was wrong. Now, Correct. admittedly, he was a he was of a subsequent generation, and that's very important. Um, but, uh, certainly Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, Eliza's son, uh, had a very different attitude than his contemporary, uh, Patrick Henry. Well, that's um, right. And he, you know, he voiced those ideas. Pa Patrick Henry wasn't at the Philadelphia convention, but, uh, George Mason was, and George Mason, you know, fellow Virginian with Henry, um, you know, likewise never emancipated the people he enslaved, but he understood that he was involved in an immoral, you know, by the time of the American Revolution, they had come to decide they were involved in an immoral and indefensible, mm -hmm. um, cruel, exploitative system. And Eliza had none of that. Her her sons had none of that. Her daughter had none of that. And in fact, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney makes at the Philadelphia uh, Constitutional Convention makes a, a fierce defense of perpetuating mm -hmm. slavery under the Constitution, and and that gets written into, you know, the the design of our government that that's still existing today. So it's um, that it's very different to read the Virginians of you know 
of both the generations, I guess, in the revolutionary yes. era, both the older people like George Mason and younger people like James Madison. Um, it's very different to read that than to read the South Carolinians. Yeah, I, I still don't have a, I, I myself, I mean, the, those those slaveholders in Virginia are living in slave majority colonies. I mean, counties, counties, I'm sorry. Um, it It's not as if they're unused to being a, a slave, a minority within a slave, enslaved majority. I still don't, I, I have never found anyone with a really good uh, handle on why the difference is. Yeah, I'm, I'm vexed by that too. Yeah. Um, Let's um, let's talk about the return to um, let's talk about their return to South Carolina and the disaster that happens to the Pinckneys uh, with that. So the uh, Pinckneys were divided over how long they were going to stay in England. I think Charles thought it was temporary. I think Eliza hoped that it was permanent. They went back and forth um, in you know negotiating as any any couple does about such a a, a crucial issue. But then when um, the seven years of French and Indian War breaks out in the interior of North America, they they realize that their holdings in Carolina are in jeopardy. And so Charles says, we've got to go back or we may lose everything we have. And she agrees. So they come back to South Carolina uh, and Charles, uh, who's I think 60 at that point, um, contracts malaria and dies. And it plunges Eliza into a period of sort of staggering grief. And she writes in her letter book about how lost she feels, about how angry she is, uh, about her heartbreak. Like she, she wrote to one friend that she resented even having to bury him in the ground of South Carolina. So she's just filled with, um, you know, loss and, and anger and grief. And she, ha- but she feels obligated to tell their friends, you know, around the Atlantic, to tell her family down uh, in the uh, Caribbean, to tell business contacts uh, in London what has happened. And so she has to write, she has to narrate his death and her response over and over and over again. And then she makes copies of that in her letter book. And so so we have a a lot of insight into how much she loved him and how lost she was temporarily, but then her resolve to rebuild a family fortune uh, and to make sure that her children honored their father. Now, at the time, both uh, Charles Coatsworth um, and and Thomas, their, her two sons, were in England uh, at school. Correct. Correct. And so she'll be separated from them uh, for the rest of the seventeen sixties. Right, for a decade or so from Charles Coatsworth, and almost fourteen years total from Thomas. So, you know, Thomas is just a very little boy when she leaves him behind, I think seven or eight, um, when they leave him in England under the care of his older, you know, very responsible and very devoted uh, brother. So, you know, he's away, comes back. Um, the, the daughter they take back to South Carolina with them, Harriet, is the middle child, and they decide they'll take Harriet back to South Carolina. And so, you know, for a decade there, Eliza and Harriet are basically living alone together, uh, surrounded by uh, the people they are enslaving, of course, but alone together as as the white family, while the two sons come of age uh, in England. And, you know, at one point, they, um, one of um, the uh, schoolmasters, I, I guess, or uh, surrogate parents in London sends a painting of Thomas and Charles Coatsworth back to South Carolina. And Eliza and Harriet have to admit they, they don't recognize Thomas. <laughs> that's, um, that's a very powerful <laughs> um, uh, idea. 
Yeah, um, but she's written, you know, she writes all these uh, elaborate advisory letters to them about what they should do, the kind of men they should become, the kind of courses that they should study, uh, and and so on and so forth. And so the relationship that she builds to them is, is to me, amazingly close and amazingly yes. influential um, because it takes place only through letters transported across the Atlantic Ocean. Well, fortunately for us, then we have them. We have them in the letter book. Fortunately, um, yeah. Uh, this gets us back to. I mean, there's so much of you in this book. I mean, uh, what you've been doing for the last 20 years. Your very first book was subtitled "Blood Ties and Emotional Bonds Among the Early South Carolina Gentry." Um, and one of the things that you bring out about the Pinckneys is they're very rich communal, uh, shared emotional life. Um, None of the three children um, seem to have been disaffected from mother or father. Um, they seem to have had a very rich connection. Could you could you describe that? And and, and is this unusual? I mean, you're you're the expert. Um, uh, how is this? Uh, how does does she foster this in a in unusual ways? Or uh, please. Well, so there are two kinds of connections within the 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 Pinckney world, the Pinckney, I guess I should say Pinckney or Ree world, because Harriet does get married. Uh she her name becomes Harriet Pinckney or Ree. Um it's a That's prompt H-O-R-R. marriage. It doesn't last forever, but anyway. Yeah. Um but there That's are H O R R Y for those of people who don't know South Carolina. So, yes, H O R R Y. Hori or or Ree, but I think it's pronounced Ori. Uh Ori, yeah. So they have economic connections that are very important to all four of them. Uh, Harriet is, um, you know, in adulthood is sort of the um, surrogate planter uh, and um, business fill-in for her brothers while they're engaging in diplomacy on behalf of the United States. Uh, They are, you know, from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and into the 90s and beyond 1760s through the 1790s and beyond. They are moving enslaved people uh, among different plantations to be most efficient. Uh, they travel and reside with one another for long periods of time. So so they have both financial connections, but they also have very close emotional connections. And, you know, I looked very hard to see alienation or resentment uh, within the family. Uh, especially I thought, how could Harriet and her mother not have tussled, you know, from time to time as Harriet grows to become a woman in her mother's household and then her mother grows old in Harriet's household. But I just couldn't find very much of it. But there was a hint. So during the revolution, Harriet's husband, Daniel Ory, was a patriot during the occupation of Charleston, he renounced his allegiance to the Patriot cause, uh, reasserted his loyalty to Britain, um, and then soon thereafter left the colony. So at the moment that Harriet's husband is renouncing his Patriot allegiance and you know returning to the uh, fold of the king in Britain, her brothers are fighting in the Revolutionary War. And I thought here, there's got to be some estrangement here. Eliza was very unhappy with this situation. And I think never forgave Daniel, but the brothers went to great lengths to ensure Harriet that they stood with her. And so I thought if there was ever going to be a breaking point in the four of them, it would have come at that moment and it did not. So that told me, and lots of other South Carolina families are fractured over Mm -hmm. loyalties uh, during the revolution, especially during the occupation of Charleston. But to me that, that spoke to their determination to remain committed to one another, you know, and their love of one another. Harriet and Thomas had an especially close relationship, um, which which I really enjoyed, um, you know, reading about. And then they mm-hmm. taught their children to be very devoted. The, the three children taught their children to be very devoted to their grandmother, to be very connected to one another. And so, you know, the the emotional connections mattered a lot to them as well as the strategic and economic connections. And that I think is, 
is common in elite South Carolina colonial families generally, although lots of them, again, were fractured during the revolution. Mm-hmm. Yes. So they're, they're, they're Pinckney Inc., uh, but they're also much more than that. Right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, You say that, um, to go back a little bit in time, you say that Eliza's decision to remain in South Carolina was one of the most surprising decisions of her life. Uh, Why was that? How did her life change because of that decision? So she um, had wanted to move to England permanently. She had tried to coax Charles into staying uh, in England permanently. They realized, as I said before, because of the spiraling war in the interior of North America, that they needed to come back, but they had agreed before they sailed from England to South Carolina uh, in the 1750s that they would go and stay, you know, two or three years until Charles could get um, the families, she and Charles together could get the families economic stabilized. They could sell off all their holdings and then they would go back to England. So, that's what she wanted to do, and, and that was the plan. When he died, her friends in England wrote and said, when are you coming back? Because they knew she wanted to be there, and her sons were there. And so they just assumed, like, you will put, you'll put your, basically your holdings in receivership here, or you'll sell them, and you'll come back with Harriet and live with us. And that is not what she decided to do. She decided instead that she would follow through on their plan of making sure that she reset the family on the strongest possible financial footing. And she wasn't able to do that in two years or three years, but eventually she was. And then, you know, as happens with us, like, you know, life just it, it just unfolds and your plans that seemed so crucial a year or two or three ago, you know, five, six years pass and, and, and that fades. And so, you know, by that, by the time that she had stabilized things enough that she could go back to England, she was re-entrenched um, in the life of South Carolina. Her daughter was growing up. Her sons were doing very well. There was no emergent situation that called her back to England. Uh, and, you know, she she liked her schemes, her agricultural experiments. I think she liked the power that she wielded uh, in South Carolina, the economic uh, and the social power that uh, she wielded. And, and so she made her life there. And after a youth of uh, you know, traipsing around uh, the Atlantic world. She never left South Carolina again until her children coaxed her uh, in the last year of her life to go to Philadelphia for breast cancer treatment. Um, I, I just wanted to, uh, we're, we're way getting, going way over time now. So I, I wanted to uh, ask you, was there a different place for widows uh, these widow patriarchs, kind of strange to call them that, um, in South Carolina than there was in other parts of the American colonies. Um, because you describe her, it's not just the, the life or death control that she has over her ensl- the people that she enslaves. Um, it's her her ability to give advice and to run a business and to have that accepted by men who are even outside of her family. It seems to me very interesting. Right. So she was very skilled. And I think the people, the men she encountered recognized that she was very skilled. Um, She did not violate um, the racial norms of South Carolina. And she did not violate the sort of, I guess, sort of essential gender norms uh, of South Carolina. I mean, she wore fancy silk dresses and had dinner parties. uh, and she socialized with people. And so she was both very skilled in the roles of women, but also skilled in the roles of men. And Charles wanted her to return to her independence. In his will, he left everything and everybody to Eliza and their three minor children. And she was their guardian and she was the executor of the will. So as she said, I have nobody to call me to account. 
So she was this, she had sole authority over the lives of the people she enslaved and she had sole authority over the estates that, that she and her husband had acquired, um, you know, him over his long lifetime. And she had sole authority over those children. Um, and she navigated very adeptly um, the role of mother and father of, um, you know, uh, society figure and uh, planter patriarch. There are hints in the records from South Carolina of other women very similar to her. Uh, Rebecca Bruton Mott, for example, um, members of the Middleton family. Um, but I don't have the records of their lives uh, mm -hmm. in the same degree that, uh, that we're able to have the records of Eliza's lives. Thanks. I, I have to say, if, if we're nearing the end, thanks to mm -hmm. Connie Scholes and the team of scholars at the University of South Carolina who launched the Harriet Pinkney or uh, Harriet Pinkney Ori and Eliza Lucas Pinkney digital projects, sort of bringing together in a digital format all of the writings of those two women. They, they've since now turned to the men in the family, mm -hmm. um, but but the record that they compiled is you know, sort of unsurpassed. And so there are hints and uh, suggestions in the sources of other women like Eliza, um, but but no woman that I've met in the 18th century uh, of, from the colonial South for whom you can write a full and deep biography. Mm -hmm. I hope a lot um, of women's historians are listening and, and will prove me wrong. Yeah, so hopefully. <laughs> hopefully. Um, so I... I I don't want to give, I, we don't have the time, and besides, I don't want to give away the, the twists and turns um, that occur in during the American Revolution, uh, which is um, a cataclysmic event in the life of the South Carolina, uh, South Carolinians of all races and classes. Um, but just to conclude with some of the way that you approach this, um, you, as you just, you just described the, the benefit that we, many of us now enjoy from the digital collections, which have kind of transformed our, our research lives over the last just 10 years, maybe even less. Um, what uh, I was very envious during this time of COVID to read in the acknowledgments, all the places you got to visit um, while you were putting this together. Uh, what were some of those places and, and how are they like and different from Eliza's time? What did you learn about Eliza by going to these places? Oh, I had so much fun traveling uh, to the places uh, where Eliza lived. So I got to go to uh, Antigua um, and into the interior. So walk around St. John's, but also go into the interior so I could see the spaces um, you know, where her family's um, estates were. And and I, I wouldn't have known this if I hadn't gone there. Like if you um, look from one site in the central plain uh, of Antigua where the Lucas's own property, uh, you can see a cut in the mountains that line the island and you can see the central southern port in Antigua. And so you could see sort of looking out into the ocean toward uh, toward England. So there's that. I was able to go around uh, low country, South Carolina. Uh, Harriet's uh, home is still standing. You can go on a tour of Harriet Pinckney Ori's uh, last home. Uh, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney owned one of those homes on Rainbow Row. Uh, Thomas Pinckney's uh, last residence, which was really his, his second wife's home, uh, is the site of the Spoleto Festival headquarters now in South Carolina. So those sites are there. I wandered around uh, England. I went to Ripley. I even got to go into uh, the grounds of the still standing home that uh, Charles and Eliza bought uh, in Ripley, England. And so um, you know, it was, it was really important for me to see the world as she saw it as much as I possibly could. And also just to feel the difference of, you know, the Caribbean mm -hmm. versus London versus South Carolina. And, and you know, and I walked around uh, the spaces in Philadelphia uh, where, where she died. Um, so, 
So I thoroughly enjoyed that. And and I hope we can all get vaccinated very soon and going back <laughs> to travel. I'm, I'm super grateful for all the digital projects and all the work we can do from our homes. Um, but there's nothing quite like going to spaces and places and uh, and archives. And, and I hope we can all get to do that again soon. Yeah. Um, just in conclusion, um, so you've written this uh, biography. Um, I think I'm right in saying that you've not written a straight up historical biography in the past. Correct. Uh, you've you've written sort of a, a, a founding a family that was you've written sort of as it were. There's a lot of biographical material and stuff you've written, but this is your first standalone biography. Did you find it different? Did you find it challenging? Uh, for myself, I kind of never want to do it again. Um, in some ways, uh, but uh, what's what's your feeling about it now? Well, I don't know if you found this when you started writing your biography. I've never done one before, um, and I thought, well. It will have a natural structure. That, you know, that there's the beginning, the middle, and the end, and so I'll know, you know, how things go. And so I won't have, you know, when I the I, I did that book you mentioned, Founders as Fathers, and it was so complicated to figure out how to piece it together. And I thought, well, with this, with the biography, you won't have to worry about piecing it together. And what a rude awakening, because you have to figure out like this stuff I talked about, Eliza's um, religion. Well, where do you put that? Mm -hmm. And her role as a slaveholder. Well, where do you put that? And her interest in botany. So you have to, there is a sort of a natural arc to it, but you have to do a lot of heavy lifting uh, as, uh, as a biographer to figure out when you can tell your reader things and when is too late to suddenly introduce? I mean, did you find that with the yeah, biography? I, found, I, I, I absolutely had exactly the same. Uh, first of all, you know, I never thought that I would my first book would be a biography. Uh, then there was the question: Should historians write biographies? Because you know, uh, I I was raised to believe that we shouldn't. Uh, by you know, stern you know, French speaking social historians that yeah. this is a very bad, this is a very bad thing. Um, and, uh, so there, after I recovered from that, then, yeah, I had exactly that same experience. I, I knew, I, of course, I didn't know when he was born, <laughs> but I had, I, when Daniel Morgan was born, since he never revealed that and didn't know himself, uh, but I knew when he died. So I figured that would be easy, but then, yeah. When do I talk about rifles? Yes. You know, is that important? You know, um, do I, you know, when do it, and, and then there's all the sort of determinations you have to make. It should be evident. It was evident to me that um, the French and Indian War must have been a great moment in his life and he learned a lot from it. And then by the time I was done, I, I had absolutely no idea what he had learned from the French and Indian War um, or what had ever yes. happened to him. Um, and, and that is the feeling too, is that I now know more about Daniel Morgan than any other living person. I think I can probably say that. And I don't know him at all. I don't know yes. him at all. It's a very, fr I mean, it's a very frustrating uh, form of writing because yep. you, you, that's it, that captures it perfectly. You know everything you could possibly know. And yet there are all these th things that you'll never be able to know. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. And I can make a long list of those. A very long list, yeah, uh, right off the top of my head, and of all, and people say, "Well, what would you like to ask him?" And I say, "I hardly know where to begin." You know, it's it's uh, it's an endless list. Um, well, this has been delightful, um, and uh, thank you so much, uh, Lori Glover, for once again uh, being a part of historically thinking. Well, I just love the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes, and if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runnett. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.